Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. Welcome to this episode. I'm very excited about this next topic. Today we're talking about a subject that is very familiar to all of us, I imagine. It's an insect which causes a mixed reaction. I think of them as black and yellow weaponized bundles of fury. <laughs> but, but our expert guest is here to change my mind and explain why this insect is so vital to our ecosystem. They are insects, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> did you guess it yet? Of course, we'll be talking about wasps. Our expert guest today is Louis Nastasi, who is a PhD candidate from Penn State's Frost Entomological Museum, where he studies the evolution and classification of wasps. His current research is focused on discovering new species of wasps that are found in threatened prairie remnant habitats in Midwestern Northern America. That is a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Louis. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about wasps and hopefully change some people's minds. I know they're kind of a a very negative topic in most cases, but I hope that I can open people's eyes and demonstrate that uh, they're not all bad. Well, they certainly strike fear in me, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So once again, this is a subject that I have a really limited knowledge about. So can you first tell me a little bit about what you do for your research? Absolutely. So uh, like you've mentioned, uh, I'm a PhD candidate at the Frost Entomological Museum, which is the research collection of insects here at Penn State. We have a collection of over 1 million different arthropod specimens. Many of them are pinned and stored in museum drawers. We have many in ethanol and also mounted on slides. And the collection here is used for a number of different purposes. But the one that I'm most interested in that I use in my research is describing new species and then determining the relationships between species. So my specialty is an area called systematics, which, as I've mentioned, deals with the different evolutionary relationships between organisms and also includes the field of taxonomy that deals with nomenclature. So whenever you see a long, scary scientific name, uh, people that do the work that I do are the ones that come up with those uh, and provide those names for all species that are known on Earth. How do you come up with those names? This is a, you know, it's a bit of an off topic question, but how I've always wondered that. See, that's a whole podcast episode in itself. Um, There's actually a really long, intense process that goes into naming a species. I won't go too far into it now, but uh, the names themselves generally reflect something about the organism. So uh, there are some wasps that are named um, after the colors of their body, uh, the appearance of different structures, very general things. Uh, Or often you'll also see uh, species named after other people. Uh, especially prominent scientists, people that have had kind of uh, well-reaching impacts on their fields of studies. Um, There are, of course, a lot of nuanced ideas that come along with giving names to species, but yeah, that could be a whole separate episode. Maybe that's a a future topic for for one of your episodes Yeah, maybe I'll have to get you back for that (laughs) to have a a talk about that. No, that's brilliant. So 
what I'm hearing is the evolution of wasps. And that just sounds fascinating to me. Obviously, as I mentioned mm. to you before, human evolution was, uh, was, was my sort of speciality when I was doing my degree. But what can you tell me about the evolution of wasps? <laughs> so I can tell you a whole lot because they're a really fascinating group of insects. So uh, one thing that I will start with is you've mentioned wasps are these uh, buzzy black and yellow things. I'll tell you, that's only the, an incredibly small number of actual wasps that fit that description. Uh, what you commonly think of are wasp-like hornets and yellow jackets. Uh, those belong to a family called the Vespid wasps, and they comprise only a few thousand species. Uh, but as a whole, uh, wasps comprise more than 140,000 described extant species. Uh, which is uh, usually kind of a mind-blowing thing for people. They think of, you know, you see a yellow jacket, and that's what all wasps look like. That's kind of the the archetype that all wasps belong to. Yeah. But there's really a tremendous diversity of wasps. They include some of the largest insects and also the smallest flying insects. Uh, there's a group called the fairy flies that are just really tiny wasps, fractions of a millimeter in length. Uh, and they're actually parasitic wasps, which I know kind of also sounds kind of scary, but uh, parasitic wasps, as hopefully we'll discuss later today, play a really key role in environments and uh, play a really big role in ensuring that we humans have food to eat. But I won't go too deep into that quite yet. Uh, in terms of evolution, uh, wasps uh, have existed for a tremendously long time, hundreds of millions of years. Uh, and in that time, they diversified in some really incredible ways. So as I mentioned, there are over 140,000 species of what we would call wasps directly. Uh, but also closely related to them are ants and bees, which comprise at least another 20,000, if not more, described species. So uh, the wasps as a whole are really just an enormous group. Uh, and calling them these kind of scary yellow black things doesn't really get at just how magnificent these creatures are. And I know that I will obviously be biased. This is my, my field of study, my area of expertise. But there's really just so much more than what meets the eye when it comes to wasps. I wonder if the dinosaurs felt the same way I do about wasps. <laughs> they were certainly around at that point in time, maybe. Well, that's, I think um, that's, that it's, that in itself is mind blowing to me. I think that's just absolutely. amazing. So you're saying that these, the yellow and black things that follow us around when we're in a park or having an ice cream, that's not all there is to wasps. Absolutely not. So those are the ones that uh, I'd say humans are most likely to interact with uh, for a couple of reasons. One being, you know, if you're outside eating food, they're going to find you no matter where they are. They're going to come after you for your food. Uh, so that aspect alone means they're one of the more um, notable insects that humans interact with on a regular basis. Uh, but, you know, when you're considering the massive diversity of life and how many species the average person really interacts with on a given day, you know, across all groups of animals, plants, and so on, you're only interacting with this, this really infinitesimally small amount of, of diversity, essentially. Uh, but if you were to, you know, go into a more natural area, like uh, a protected wildlife area, you went on a hike uh, up a mountain or so on, you would expose yourself to a much greater diversity just doing that alone. So the average person who is uh, working a normal job, um, taking care of a family and so on, only interacts with a couple types of wasps. But uh, myself being this uh, researcher studying these insects, obviously we'll have a much more broad uh, interaction with them. And so one thing that I will say is the reason that the reason that you associate wasps as these black and yellow buzzy things is because that's what you're most used to. 
mm-hmm. but those are um, while they're more conspicuous than a lot of other wasps. Uh, most wasps that do exist are incredibly, incredibly small. As I alluded to earlier, uh, the wasps that I study, which are a family uh, of gall-inducing wasps, which I might chat about a little more later, uh, they can be quite small. On the larger end, they're about five millimeters in total body oh, length, wow. so they're very small. Some of these insects you would not see and acknowledge that they're wasps. They look entirely different from what you're used to seeing. Um, And I think that it's kind of mind blowing. Uh, When I first started learning about these insects, I too had this assumption of there being one kind of design for wasps, but starting to explore their greater diversity. It's it's really a mind blowing transformative experience. And hopefully through our chat today, we can provide some of that to, to your viewers. Well, n- no one will be able to see me, but I'm nodding along excitedly like, wow. <laughs> um, so when, you, when you're talking about all these different wasps that are, you know, tiny and you get slightly bigger ones, is there, are there sort of, what are the class, the categories that you look for or the, you know, the things that you look for to confirm that it is a wasp? So that is a really great question. The one I was hoping you would ask is so the wasps are a little complicated to define. So uh, wasps belong to a group of insects called Hymenoptera. Uh, for those of you that remember your classification from high school biology, that is an order. So the order Hymenoptera contains bees, ants, wasps, and also another group called sawflies that some people might be familiar with. But we'll focus on those other three for this part of the conversation. So we define wasps uh, as part of an evolutionary group. So um, I have emailed Charlie here a uh, what we call a phylogenetic tree. Uh, this is a diagram that we can use to examine and interpret the different um, evolutionary interactions between different organisms. Uh, and I believe we'll be able to post this file online for you all to look at at home. So on this phylogeny, what we have here um, are branches, each of which uh, ending in a taxonomic name. So there's a scientific name for a group of insects. So when we're looking at this phylogeny here, See, there's one major branch at the top. That's the group Symphyta. These are sawflies that I alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. But if you look, there's another branch below it that connects to it. And everything belonging to that connecting branch is what we consider to be true wasps. So you can see there's one little line that leads to this really, really big kind of coalescing structure of other groups. Those are all different wasps. Um, and we have to define wasps evolution narrowly. Because uh, in terms of their appearance and their behavior, they're just incredibly, incredibly different. There's no kind of one-size-fits-all understanding of wasps beyond this evolutionary perspective. So all of these wasp names you can see here, all the way from Seraphrenoidea all the way down to Apoidea, represent all different superfamilies, these higher groups of wasps. Um, And one thing that I do want to point out here is if you look all the way at the bottom of this image, you'll see two names. You'll see Apoidea and mm-hmm. formicoidea. So those of you that know scientific names might rec- uh, recognize these as bees and ants. So if we look at my previous definition that all wasps comprise this one lineage here, we call this apocrita in terms of the scientific names. You'll see that uh, the ants and the bees are actually nested within this group that we call wasps. And uh, this might be mind-blowing for some of you. That is because uh, ants and bees are true wasps. They are simply more specialized forms of these organisms. Bees, we can call them kind of pollinating, plant-eating wasps. Uh, and ants are these kind of colonial, um, really bizarre social wasps that have, be, again, become very specialized to fit one really narrow definition. 
So what we're seeing here is how kind of colloquially we consider these to be really different organisms, but they are wasps themselves. Uh, and one way that we can recognize a wasp in a more broad sense is what we call the wasp waist. So if you look at a wasp from the top down, you'll see the head, you'll see the thorax, and you'll see the abdomen. Now between those lower segments, the thorax and the abdomen, you'll see usually a narrow constriction, like a break between the two segments, almost like if you pictured someone wearing a corset, this yeah. is a very narrowed section between those body segments. And that's one of the characteristic features of this group that we call wasps. So to answer your question directly, wasps belong to the evolutionary group Apocrita, and they will usually have a really narrow waist between the abdomen and the thorax. Okay, so does that that goes for bees and ants? Yes, it does. What? No, <laughs> that just it just it completely that baffles me. I mean, I can see okay, I can see bees, but when you say that ants are sort of true wasps, that just my mind's just not making that that connection just yet. <laughs> So uh, one thing I like to to talk about is when people say they hate wasps, they have to be very careful because they're very close to saying they hate bees and they hate ants, both of which uh, I'd say the public is generally more accepting of because they do have really highly pronounced (laughs) roles in a lot of ways. Um, So as I alluded to earlier, wasps play a really major role in our food systems. Uh, Bees are one of the major reasons of that if we consider bees to be true wasps, which evolutionarily they are. But the other wasps themselves are also really important for uh, the human agricultural system that we've set up. So a lot of wasps are, again, as I mentioned earlier, parasitic in nature. So what this means is wasps actually lay their eggs directly in other insects. Mm -hmm. Uh, The wasp larvae that hatch from those eggs will eat that insect and they develop into adults, uh, emerge from their host, and then fly off to repeat the process. So this is what we call parasitoid wasps. And the reason they're very important is because they actually prevent pest insects from growing at tremendous quantities. So one thing we're slowly realizing in terms of research is that most insects have at least one species of corresponding parasitic wasp to them. And the reason this is so important to our food systems is that pest insects also have these parasitic wasps associated with them. So natural systems have this kind of innate balance to them where random insects will all have associated parasitoids that interact with them and put basically survival pressure on these other insects. And what that means is wasps basically keep the populations of other insects under control essentially at all times. And that does include, again, in human food systems. And this is true to the point where we have wasps directly used in essentially pest control methods. There's a practice called biological control where we can take wasps and introduce them to a habitat and those wasps will go and attack pests uh, going through the normal life cycle, this parasitic life cycle they undergo and basically will kill these dangerous pests while boosting their own numbers through reproduction. So wasps are actually some of our greatest allies in producing food, which is again, not something most people would expect or think about so that's one of the endless ways that wasps really are just so much more than what we generally consider them to be I think that's yeah that's an amazing point because I know from just you know when you're it's the summer and you're sitting in a beer garden in the pub with your friends and you know as I would and these wasps all come along and people start saying oh what's the point in wasps what do they even do And I always knew, obviously, everything has a place, everything has a job, everything is here for a reason. But I never sort of, I never knew (laughs) 
how yes. amazing they are. And especially when you say that bees are wasps and you know that's just we all know what bees do we all know the importance of bees we all know what a world would look like without bees absolutely Uh, yeah I'm I'm speechless (laughs) so I will add to that and say um again you mentioned the black and yellow wasps these uh, yellow jackets members of the group Vespidae uh they're actually really important also so they're not parasitic like many other wasp groups but they act as important predators so they, uh, as adults, will generally not consume high amounts of, of meat. They're not generally carnivorous, but they'll feed uh, basically meat, as in other animals, to their larvae to help them develop. So what they often will do is uh, attack things like caterpillars that could threaten to damage crops or otherwise be detrimental. And they'll then feed those caterpillars to their larvae as part of, again, their natural life cycle. So even these insects we view as really just negative, almost pests in a way, they're still helping us because they're still, you know, they're basically the exterminators of the of the insect world. They really play this crucial role of keeping other insects under control. And, you know, we just really don't appreciate that capacity very much, unfortunately. So in a similar way to spiders keeping fly populations down, is it sort of, if we think about it on Absolutely. those terms? So, but why? Okay, I'm going to ask what, what everyone is thinking. Why are the yellow and black ones so angry? Why are they, why do they want to attack yeah. us? <laughs> so that's a really great question. So the, the best way to answer that is to say they're very territorial in nature. So uh, the yellow and black wasps, what we call social wasps, which here's another mind-blowing thing. Most people don't realize not all wasps are social. In fact, only a tiny sliver of them are. Most of them, again, these vespid wasps. Um, and they're very territorial. I mean, if you go near their nests, they're going to get angry with you. They don't want you to be there because their nest is where all their offspring are, where all their resources are located. So that's one aspect of it. And um, a lot of wasps, I hate to say, have kind of developed this fearless attitude mm-hmm. toward other animals a lot <laughs> of the time. Um, so as you might also associate with wasps, stinging is definitely something uh, we can think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, It'll also blow your mind to say not all wasps can sting. Only, again, a relatively small portion of them can sting you. Well, that's Uh, reassuring. What that does mean (laughs) is that the wasps that can sting realize this and are like, we can sting, we can protect ourselves. We're not going to be scared of humans. (laughs) And then they'll, you know, go after your food. They'll go after your ice cream or meat or whatever you've been eating at that point in time. So they're definitely the, I'd say the, the exception to the general rule of wasps. Most wasps are not um, angry, I think is what I want to say. Um, they're generally very docile insects. I mean, most people don't realize this, that most wasps that can sting will not sting you unless you grab them and compress the body. That tends to be the trigger for the sting reaction. Um, unless, of course, you're disturbing their nest directly, in which case all bets are off. Um, so what I would say to your audience is we kind of live in fear of wasps, but what I would like to encourage people to do is respect them rather mm-hmm. than fear them. Because if you're not bothering them, sure, you might get one random sting, but those wasps are just doing their jobs, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And if you get in the way of their jobs, the wasp will not be appreciative of that. So I know yeah. that's a very uh, reduced way to think of it, but... They're just trying to live their lives just like the rest of us. No, absolutely. And if you, th- if I suppose when you talk about compressing them, if you think, I think about the times I've been stung, it's when one's flown up my sleeve and I've sort of 
you know oh what's that and you've sort of rubbed your arm and yeah. then then you feel the pain and so yeah so absolutely and I've I've had you know a huge I don't know if it was a wasp or a hornet carry off a bit of chicken from a plate when I was on holiday and I was just astounded at their strength and but you talk about the sort of wasps that live in a nest do they have and I know bees are wasps so I need to stop thinking of them as separate but do they have the same sort of social structures that bees and ants have yeah so um, what's really interesting is bees and ants uh, have developed this social behavior independently of each other so there's no common origin of this Um, and actually within uh, if you look at this phylogeny again we see formicoidea as the ants and apoidea as the bees Mm-hmm. Within apoidea, there are a number of groups that lose sociality, okay. or rather um, did not have it to begin with, and only later on is this social behavior re-evolved. Uh, and the same case is true of the yellow jackets and hornets, which are also social. And you can see in there, um, from the bottom where the ants and bees are, uh, Vespoidea is the group that includes the yellow jackets and hornets. That's really far away in the tree. They're not directly related as closely as they are to some other groups. So... The social behavior is really incredibly bizarre because it pops up a number of times without really a rhyme or reason to it. It must be that whatever you know, evolutionary pressures these insects were facing led them to develop these really elaborate systems you know, through hundreds of thousands, if not millions, or even further years of history. It's become a really intricate system that, um, like all things that are evolutionarily related, simply arises out of chance and out of a need to survive, quite quite frankly. Well, I just I think it's absolutely incredible. I remember reading a book about um a book about termites once and learning about sort of their sort of social structures. And you just don't you don't think of it, do you? And again, it's human ignorance, you know, thinking we're we're the most intelligent things in the in you know in the universe, but when you look at these insects and what they do and their intricate sort of systems, it just, oh, it's, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I'm so glad you're here talking to us about it. (laughs) So my next question is you said there was how many hundred thousand species of wasps? Was it a hundred? So this is all of (laughs) a can of worms here. Okay. So when I list these numbers, we're talking about described species, meaning species that are known to science. So if we look at the order Hymenoptera as a whole, there are around 160,000 species. That includes bees, wasps, and ants. And out of that, about 20 to 30,000 species are just the bees and the ants. So that leaves us with you know, true wasps as society would recognize them broadly, somewhere between 130 and 140,000 species. Wow. But those are again, just the described species. One of my major areas of research is discovering new species. And this might shock a lot of people. Again, there are so many mind-blowing things about wasps. Uh, We believe that wasps are actually the most diverse animal group on the planet. Uh, Primarily uh, derived from this idea that they're parasitic in nature. So a lot of these parasitic wasps are really specific in their host use. So which other insects they'll use as hosts. So uh, one thing I did touch on earlier is that we think most insects uh, have at least one parasitic wasp associated with them. And if that is the case, we have pretty definitive proof at this point that insects are the most diverse animal group, at least that we know of. Um, So if we take that and run with it, if every insect has a parasitic wasp, then parasitic wasps undoubtedly outnumber all the other insects. So it'll also shock people to say that we've only described a tiny, tiny portion of the wasps on Earth. So I've been using this 160,000-ish number. It's probably closer to somewhere between one and five million species that are currently alive on Earth. 
But here's here's a big problem, and this is one that you definitely uh, will be interested in. Um, these species are going extinct faster than they can be recognized by science due to, as we can assume, a number of factors. Habitat loss, climate change, many different factors, many of which are anthropogenic, meaning they're derived directly from, from us as humans. And that's really unfortunate because, you know, once a species goes extinct and disappears, we won't have any record of it. So if we do want to do our best to confirm the diversity of these, you know, really incredible groups of insects, we need to take action to, one, halt a lot of these human-induced processes, but also do more work to discover these new species. And, you know, it's, one, it's a shock that we don't know everything about all life on Earth, but it might also come as a shock that, you know, not too many people are studying the, the biodiversity of, of insects as a whole. Uh, we've kind of moved onward as, as science saying, you know, we should be studying things like medicine or commercial drugs, things of that nature, things that are commercial in value, things that derive money. And we've kind of started to ignore these more organismal areas where we just don't know anything as scientists. And, you know, these insects, as I've mentioned already, are really crucial to not only human food systems, but ecosystems on a global scale. So if we can't study the diversity of these insects, you know, we're always missing this massive piece of the puzzle of how organisms interact in their native environments. So the diversity of wasps is kind of a double-edged sword. It's, we think they're incredibly diverse, but also we don't necessarily have the means to describe them all before those species are lost forever. So the diversity of wasps is a very uh, interesting topic that I think is really worth further discussion. No, absolutely. I think I think it's absolutely terrifying that you say that there's wasp species that probably won't be identified because they're going they're going extinct. So that it, you just think about how many how many species have already been lost without without being able to sort of identify them and describe them. That's really absolutely. sad. I think that's that's and, really sad. Yeah. And these estimates that we have too of how many species there might be are again only based on the number of described species. So. If, you know, 5 million wasp species have gone extinct and we've never found them, then we might never estimate that there could have been that many to begin with. So our view of this holistic life on Earth is being really highly impacted here. We might never be able to draw high-level conclusions about what species exist or might have existed if we don't continue to describe them, but also don't stop the agents that are causing us to lose them. And I imagine if if there are insect other insect species that the that you know that the wasps feed on then that's going to be a huge factor for if they're going extinct that's going to be a huge factor for losing a lot of the wasps if they have no if they have no prey if their corresponding insect is Absolutely. going extinct oh it's so sad i feel i love wasps now <laughs> you've done your job yeah, uh, you've definitely <laughs> touched on an important point here again because of these parasitic relationships a lot of wasps have if they don't have the host, they die. They can't reproduce. So the second a host goes extinct, all of its wasp associates go extinct as well. And this is magnified many times when we consider that a lot of species have more than one possible parasitic wasp associated with them. And they can also have parasites of other parasitic wasps. So in some systems, uh, especially those are related to um, plant-dwelling insects, we can have up to uh, five independent levels of what we call hyperparasitism, those are parasites of parasites. Mm -hmm. So all this is to say that, you know, 20 species of wasps could all rely on just one species of another insect. So if we, if we lose only one species of insect, that could have a tremendously cascading effect on 
a loss of diversity as a whole, which is horrifying to think about, but it's really important for us to recognize that if we do want to rectify a lot of the conservation issues we're facing. So before we go into a little bit of, uh, of positivity and sort of hope and talk about projects that are ongoing to sort of, you know, to try and rectify the situation, can you, it's really depressing, but can you tell us like what a world without wasps would look like? What would, you know, we all have an idea, but what would it look like? So uh, if we consider wasps as broadly as possible, we obviously know it's going to look like nothing. But for a moment, I want to restrict our focus here to wasps excluding these ants and these bees. So we have kind of more societally accept accessible version of the story. And without wasps, uh, there's a high chance we wouldn't have humans either, just uh, considering how deeply ingrained relationships and ecosystems are. Mm-hmm. We won't be able to produce food at the same level we are because pests would likely become more prevalent. We wouldn't have these really important um, biological control aids to attack some of these pests. Again, these parasitic wasps can be harnessed by people to decrease populations of prevalent pests. And that's to say nothing of the the impacts that it would have on global ecosystems, excluding human involvement. So it's really horrifying to think that wasps have become, you know, so deeply ingrained in in life on earth that if we lose wasps, it's quite possible we'd see a worldwide collapse of all major terrestrial ecosystems. It's quite scary to think of. It really is. And people, I'm thinking of sort of species that people can relate to more if we think about birds and and things like uh, things like birds and reptiles that possibly feed on these wasps absolutely if they you know people love birds what if they what if all their food disappeared you know then yeah that'd be really unfortunate yeah that is a consequence we do have to think about considering um, insects make up a truly tremendous amount of the biomass that's consumed by vertebrates uh, day to day you know even many humans depend on insects for food in many places as well so there's just a truly diverse array of of potential issues that could arise from wasps not being present in the same quantities so why do you think if if they're so important this is this is i'm thinking of this in my you know in my own head absolutely why do you think if they're so important why have they been so heavily demonized by by humans like why is society so scared of them and insects as a whole are, you know oh creepy crawlies you know it's yeah. they're not loved so there's actually fortunately kind of an easy answer to this one which i think you'll also find really compelling so um, you say that people hate all insects as a whole i'd say there's one at least one major exception and that's butterflies right yes. so butterflies big showy beautiful insects Um, One of the reasons that wasps have been so kind of left by the wayside in all this is because in terms of the study of insects, uh, very early on, people were very attracted to showy, beautiful insects. So butterflies were a big contender. Um, Large beetles, very conspicuous insects, um, such as those were really highly studied. And, you know, tiny specks that are brown and darkly colored wasps got ignored entirely. So thinking back to when kind of the earlier scientific ideas started to emerge about insects, you know, 1700s and so on, um, wasps basically received no attention. Uh, People were focused on these really showy insects and their cabinets of curiosity and in their displays to show off wealth or status that a lot of these other groups were neglected. 
And that impact carried on once modern science became more commonplace. We see groups like butterflies and beetles being really heavily researched because of one, how aesthetically pleasing they can be in many cases, but also kind of carrying on this legacy of these groups being the ones people care about. So as a result of that, we've seen many groups of insects, including flies and wasps, for instance, really not being appreciated at the level they need to be. So there's a historical aspect to this, but also the idea that, you know, wasps are so truly diverse and we've only just scratched the surface of understanding them. As in the last 50 years, we've probably described the majority of wasp species, I, I guess. It's, just, it's a very recent uh, emerging science. Uh, so there's a lot of aspects that go into why wasps are underappreciated. But I think the biggest one is, uh, as we addressed earlier, again, the most common conspicuous wasps are the ones that can be of medical significance, the ones that can be annoying, the ones that people just hate. They're the ones you're most likely to interact with. And that I think really drives home this idea that wasps are bad, which as we've discussed so far is clearly not the actual case, but based on individual experience, I, I can't fault people for having such a negative impression of them. No, well, I wonder if those wasps are aware that, you know, that one species are aware of the bad name they've given to, <laughs> to this whole, to the, all these different species of amazing creatures. Um, Absolutely. I want to go backwards a little bit and talk to you about your your gall wasps and yes. ask you what that means. Absolutely. So gall wasps are a really awesome group. These are all really tiny, darkly colored, not beautiful wasps that have been mainly ignored by mainstream science for most of the time we've known about them. But these wasps are really interesting uh, and, in my opinion, really exciting because they induce what are called galls on plants. So a gall is essentially a modified piece of plant tissue that has been modified as the result of interaction with some other organism. So it could be a virus that causes a gall, a bacterium, an insect, a mite, and so forth. So these galls uh, are found on all different types of plants um, and wasps, typically oaks, and then um, various herbaceous plants that will have these galls, but they're very conspicuous. They look nothing like the normal plant tissue you'd expect to see there. So for instance, um, an oak gall that's fairly common in, in, a, in my area, we call it the hedgehog oak gall, because you can find it on the leaf of an oak, uh, this, these medium-sized bright green leaves, and this gall is bright yellow with red spines coming out of it like a hedgehog. Wow. It's very jarring to see, very unusual, not something you ever expect to see on a leaf out of nowhere. Yeah. And they induce these structures by laying eggs in the plant tissue. And we have no idea how they form, which is a really compelling reason to study them. But at some point between these eggs being laid and the insects inside developing, we have no idea what happens. But essentially the general life cycle is uh, a gall wasp will go to its appropriate host plant, again, an oak or an herbaceous plant of some kind. They'll lay eggs in it. Uh, the gall wasps will kind of build little chambers for themselves, almost like nests within that plant tissue. They'll develop their feed on the plant tissue. Um, so they're primarily herbivorous, uh, just to clarify that a little bit. Um, they'll pupate, meaning they'll go from the larval stage to the pupal stage. And then after uh, a predetermined amount of time, they'll be fully developed as adults and then shoo their way out of the plant tissue to go lay their eggs and mate and so on and propagate this cycle again and again. Uh, so they're really phenomenal in terms of life cycle. Um, and the study of these insects was really uh, pioneered by a select group of people in the 
um, late 1800s to early 1900s. Uh, but since then, there's really been a dearth of knowledge on these insects. Most groups are without modern standards for classification and research. And only in the last uh, 20 years or so have we really been interested in more deeply understanding these insects. So to bring this back to conservation, uh, the group that I study um, are herb gawas, meaning that they're on herbaceous plants in prairie remnants in Midwestern North America. So when I say the phrase prairie remnants, what I'm referring to are little pockets that are left behind of what was once a greater, much more all-encompassing prairie system in North America. Could the, you explain, oh, sorry, for our UK listeners, what a prairie is? Oh, all right. I did not know you <laughs> didn't have prairies in the UK. <laughs> um, so prairies are areas, um, specifically the tall grass prairies that I study, are areas where there are very large um, herbaceous plants and grasses growing in really high concentrations. And these are really interesting uh, biomes because prairies, unlike other groups, just have a tremendous abundance and diversity of plants living within them. And the diversity of plants, of course, corresponds to diversity of other organisms. So insects, other arthropods, mammals, birds, and so on, that all, de all depend on these really specific ecosystems involving plants at a very intimate level. So these prairies, like I mentioned in North America, once spanned most of the middle of the North American continent. They were incredibly widespread, these very important ecosystems. And over time, humans have taken it upon ourselves to remove the vast majority of these prairie systems. So as I mentioned, these prairies once spanned most of the, of the central continent of North America. Uh, unfortunately, there's about 2% of these prairies left. And to give you an idea of what that looks like, the prairie sites that I visit for my field research are, you know, 500 to 1,000 square meters. They're not large. They're very small remnants. So that word remnant really does hold a lot of weight here. They're tiny sections that have managed to escape destruction through some unseen means. And it's really unfortunate because these prairies are a host to a tremendous diversity of animals, like I mentioned, including mm -hmm. the gall wasps that I'm studying. So the gall wasps that I'm actively researching are associated with plants of a genus called silphium. They're often referred to as rosin weeds because they produce this kind of resinous sap-like substance. Okay. Um, and the gall wasps that live in these plants haven't been researched in depth since in the 1890s. Wow. So no one's looked at these plants. Um, a gentleman by the name of Gillette in the late 1800s described a few species of wasps associated with these plants. A couple of species have been described since then. But uh, in the second year of my PhD here, I have evidence of probably 30 to 40 species of wasps living on these plants, only on these plants and only in these really restricted prairie remnants. Wow. So that just goes to show the tremendous diversity of wasps, even in these really, you know, tiny, almost desolate and isolated little patches of land. They're incredibly diverse and only on these really selective host plants. They're only on four species of silphium that we know of in these tiny prairie remnants, yet there are dozens of species unknown to science living in these habitats. And that's not to mention the parasitic wasps that rely on these gall wasps. They're also a tremendously diverse series of insects. So it just goes to show how one really isolated habitat can really be a treasure trove of biodiversity. And you know, one of the major issues we're facing now is these prairies are not safe. They are not guaranteed protection. A lot of these prairie remnants are simply areas that we haven't decided to destroy quite yet. So there's really a major conservation implication 
uh, involved here. Uh, one recent movement that uh, Charlie, you might have heard of being involved on science Twitter is the Bell Bowl Prairie. I don't know if you have heard this name before, but this is a really small patch of prairie. Yeah. And uh, construction at an airport has threatened to just tear the whole prairie away and turn it into another runway, I believe. So uh, my understanding is they did successfully rally to delay any construction, but that prairie is not safe. There are many other projects threatening these various prairie remnants. And if these prairies are to be lost, we're also going to lose this tremendous diversity of other organisms that depend on these prairies. And to add, these prairies are just, they're beautiful. They're gorgeous places. They're unlike any other places that I've been. They're these beautiful tall grasses, these bright yellow and green and red colors that you don't find anywhere else on, on earth. So for us to lose these prairies, is just a tremendous loss to humanity for so many, so many different reasons. And if you think about the sort of the the butterfly effect, if you like, the in, the uh, the impact, if we lose these these tiny areas of land, what impacts that going to have, you know, and on a wider scale? No, it's, it really surprises me that these these areas of land, if there's not many of them and there's so many species still to be discovered, why aren't they protected? It's just, it's so frustrating. Yeah, so the good news is many of them are protected. Mm. And one thing we can do to improve the conservation of these habitats is to expand existing protections for them. So um, as you might know, U.S. politics is a very uh, complicated (laughs) behemoth. Um, Our previous political administrations did a lot to roll back protections on already protected land. Um, That does, of course, endanger a lot of what we are trying to protect in terms of these prairie remnants. But, you know, as I've said, these species that I'm studying are not yet known to science. So that is one key reason for which a lot of these areas haven't received broad attention because no one knows what's living there. And it's not until scientists like myself go there and examine these really spectacular organisms that live there and make them formally known to science, only at that point can we really advocate for protection of these organisms. You can't can't protect what you don't know exists. And that's a really kind of hard to swallow paradox within conservation, but you know, that is the argument, you know, why not conserve everything? Why, why even talk about that in that way? Because why not just assume that there is incredible diversity present? That really is the case for most habitats on earth. Maybe we don't need to find the inherent value in a habitat for it to be worth protecting. This is it. It's the, uh, it's the, the human, the human need for knowledge, the human quest for knowledge, mm. isn't it? It's, it just strikes me that, as you say, it shouldn't be that we need to discover a species in order to protect it. It should just be commonplace. That's what happens. You know, there's this area of beautiful land. We just protect it. We don't need to know, you know, everything that's on it in order to give it a justification. It should just be the way things are. But I'm yeah, really absolutely. interested to know how I know it's it's a it's, it may be a bit of a silly question, but how do you discover a new species of wasp? <laughs> So here's another podcast episode. <laughs> uh, I, I, could te- I could teach a semester-long course on this topic alone yeah. and only scratch the surface. But to discover a new species, you first need to collect specimens of that species. So that's why I'm here at the Frost Museum at Penn State, where we store these insects. You need to collect them, which is why I, this past October, I spent a lot of time in Illinois in the United States collecting um, the host plants of these insects. So you first need material. You need to then find a way in which these species are distinct from existing species. 
So you can do that either by looking at their anatomy, saying, oh, this one's got different, different structures than other known species. And you can also do this uh, through molecular data. So by sequencing the DNA of these organisms, you can also uh, determine that they are distinct enough from other species to be worthy of their own names. So that's a really quick and dirty version of how you basically decide there's a new species. But then you need to formally write up a description of that species, mm -hmm. including things like not only why it's different from others, but a comprehensive description of the appearance of that organism, its biological affiliations. So in my case, what plants they're associated with. Then you need to get it published, which is always a, a nice barrier to making science more accessible. So after you've cleared those hurdles and had the species name published in a peer-reviewed or otherwise publicly available journal, uh, then your species name enters the canon of modern science. And from that point on, that species is basically unlocked for research in other disciplines like conservation biology, medical biology, and so forth. You've mentioned a couple of times about the sort of the medical significant significance of wasps. Can mm. you just, I know it's probably again another podcast, but can you just sort of delve a, just a tiny bit into that? I'm really interested. You've mentioned it a couple of times and it keeps, I keep my ears keep hearing that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So when you first apply the terms medical significance to wasps, the first thing you think of is wasp stings and possible allergic reactions. So that's one of the reasons wasps are medically important, at least the uh, relatively restricted number of species that can sting humans. Uh, the wasps that you would generally think of, again, um, yellow jackets, hornets, and so on, are of medical significance simply because of their stings and their ability to induce harm to human beings. But there's another axis also that people don't often think of, and that's medical application of wasps. So one thing that's being heavily researched now is venom of wasps. Um, specifically for the purpose of treating things like inflammatory disorders, things like arthritis, these uh, various conditions. Apparently, uh, there's promise uh, using wasp venom to potentially treat some of these conditions uh, by reducing chronic inflammation within muscles and nervous tissue. Uh, I'm not an expert on that area myself, but there's a lot of promising research that shows that wasps, again, these hated, vilified insects mm -hmm. might actually just be supremely helpful to humans in ways we just could not even dream of discovering yet. Wow. So now you've persuaded me that wasps are amazing. What can, and I'm hoping that all of the listeners are feeling the same way, and we're really excited about wasps now. I know I am. I was excited when I saw the your Zoom background of all the different <laughs> colors and shapes and of different wasps. Yes, um, absolutely what can people do? What should we be doing? What do we need to be doing? So I know you're, you're an amazing sort of scientist studying wasps, but people like me who perhaps aren't scientists and we, we don't have access to that kind of thing, what can we do to help and to make a difference? Yeah, that's a tremendous question. And I do think there's some really strong answers to this. So one of them is to get involved in community science initiatives. Uh, perhaps the biggest one uh, for wasps that I'm aware of is the platform iNaturalist which allows you to download a mobile app and you can photograph organisms in your environment, not just wasps, but literally any living thing. You can post your observation. It'll record where and when you saw it. Uh, and then people from the vast community of enthusiasts of various different groups of animals, plants, and so on, uh, will see that observation. They can identify it to whatever level they're able to. And then real scientists like myself can access those records and then apply that to their own research. So through this platform, 
I found evidence for a number of new species of these gall wasps. Um, it might be as many as 20 new species wow. will be named as a result of interaction on community science platforms like iNaturalist. And that's a really fantastic platform that spans across disciplines. So even birds and mammals are relevant on this platform. Uh, plants are as well and so on. Um, another really fantastic way to get involved. Um, and this is a, definitely a little more of a resource tense uh, method is to start an insect collection. This could again be a whole other podcast episode, but the best way to learn about these organisms is to collect and study them in a more intimate setting. Um, this could also be another tremendous podcast episode, but um, the best way to look at these insects is to collect them, preserve them in a way that maintains their structural qualities, uh, associate the data with them, meaning where, how, and when you collected them, uh, and then you can deposit those specimens at places like the Frost Entomological Museum or other insect collections that can then use those specimens for study. Or honestly, they're great educational tools as well. Uh, here at the Frost Museum, we have a teaching collection of, oh, I guess, thousands of specimens that are specifically used to train undergraduate and graduate students in identification and biodiversity of insects. So any insect that you see has the potential to unlock a tremendous amount of outreach and research uh, and, and be made available to scientists actually conducting that work. Um, there are, of course, endless other initiatives, but I think those are the two major ones that I do want to touch on at this point. No, that sounds amazing. And it, it's it's two ways that people can get involved and get excited and sort of make a difference. Because if, you know, if everyone if everyone just takes the time to understand and, as you say, respect all these different elements of nature and we'll just start making a difference together. And I always say people are, people are scared to accept that we have had this effect on the planet. I think we put the blinkers on. I always say we put our, we put our blinkers on and we, we refuse to accept it because I think if we do, then we're accepting the guilt and we're taking on the burden of the guilt. But, and I think people are scared because again, they think that we have to make all these huge changes, but if we it's not huge changes it's small changes collectively and small actions collectively that are going to make the big difference I believe absolutely okay so so to finish obviously we've talked about how we can help and how we can get involved but how is there a way where we can expand our our knowledge on wasps I mean you've taught us so much already but I feel like we've just scratched the surface and I know I for one want to know more absolutely that is another phenomenal question. And, you know, we're learning more about wasps each and every day. So, you know, a, re a resource published two years ago might be badly out of date already. Uh, one thing that I would recommend is for people to uh, first consult print resources, either through a local library or a university researcher or something similar. There are some really incredible guides out there to wasps and other insects made for amateur entomologists, enthusiasts, and so on. But one kind of more unique venture that we've recently been working on is uh, what's called the WASP ID course. And this is a virtual course that I uh, just ran um, a little over three weeks ago at this point, at the beginning of January of 2022. It was a virtual course uh, led by myself and also featuring 19 other instructors. And uh, in this course, uh, students went through the entire diversity of WASPs, every single family learned about their biology, how to tell them apart, some really interesting things about them. We ran it completely digitally. It's gotten some fantastic feedback so far. And we're currently considering another session for this summer, quite possibly the August of 2022. So I would say that might also be a fantastic uh, low cost way for students to learn more about that also. Well, I, for one, am 
very interested in that I think you've you've sparked a new interest in me (laughs) (laughs) which I know is going to happen in every single episode I'm just going to want to learn more and more but that is the point the point is to share the passion of the expert to get everybody excited and passionate about nature and just to get outside and explore so I think we will we'll call it a day there because we could go on for I think we could go on for another several hours if we're not careful you know what (laughs) what always happens is when I have a meeting with a research colleague say okay it's going to be a one-hour meeting we'll start the meeting at like 2 p.m our time and it's like 5 30 by the time we're done it's it never goes quickly there's always more to talk about for (laughs) lost Well, I think I was really keen to do this episode because, as I say, there's so many species on Earth that are just being demonized and sort of wrongly portrayed by the media, by society. And wasps are one of the ones that I know I always go, oh, no, not a wasp. But I know deep (laughs) down that they're incredible, amazing, diverse creatures that are so important to the planet. And I am still blown away that ants are wasps. (laughs) So it is, it is something people have to come to terms with. <laughs> yeah, that might take me a while. But anyway, but thank you so much, Lewis, for joining us. It's been absolutely thank amazing. You for me. Thank you. Well, I hope you will agree that talking to Lewis was an absolutely eye-opening experience. How did I describe them at the beginning? Weaponized bundles of fury. And I think that description of wasps is an accurate summary of how most people will feel about wasps. If you mention the word wasp, people panic. But when you actually think about it and you break it down, just like everything on this planet, wasps are essential to the balance of our ecosystem. And we literally couldn't survive without them. It's that old butterfly effect once again. We all depend on each other and at the end of the day it's our job as humans to make sure that that balance isn't completely thrown out which is what we've been doing for hundreds of years now and we need to think about it and we need to stop, we need to look at our actions and we need to think right what can I do individually to make a change. And I hope that this episode has shed a little bit of light on that. In the next episode, we are going to be demystifying another subject with another expert guest. And I'm really excited to bring that one to you because, again, I think it's something that you won't really have thought about a lot. And once again, I hope you can become excited about it and realise how vital each and every piece of the natural jigsaw is to the balance and the survival of our own species and every other species with whom we share this beautiful world. Thank you for listening. I'm Charlie and this has been Mountain Conversations.